Hello and welcome again to another DF Direct Weekly. If you're new to DF Direct Weekly, here we talk about the weekly news items, behind the scenes information about DF work and what we're kind of working on at the moment, as well as taking questions from our Patreon supporters. We have a lot of interesting things to talk about this week, including Intel's Rocket Lake, as well as Cyberpunk's 1.2 patch. But before I get into that, I want to introduce my co-host for today. And first of all, I'm joined by the ever awesome Richard Ledbrader. How are you doing there, Rich? I'm doing absolutely wonderfully, Alex. I'm just uh, bowled over by your scintillating delivery for that introduction. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I did not mess that up once. Uh, as well as someone who's a lot better at introducing videos to me, we're joined by the ever awesome as well, John Linneman. How are you doing there, John? Pretty good, Alex. And see, this is why we're doing rotating hosts. We got to get everybody <laughs> used to doing this. And, you know, it's part of the fun. So Yeah, it's also part of the horror, I guess. Uh, but Audi knows a lot about that. Uh, so let's get well, right the, to the... The good news is that everybody's awesome. So yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. To go. It's the only adjective I know, actually. Um, but, but, but let's get right into these news items. This week saw the... Or actually last week, essentially, saw the release of Intel's Rocket Lake. Uh, and Rich, this is a topic that you've been looking to with uh, our colleague Will Judd, who's not joining us today, but has been doing a lot of benchmarking behind the scenes. So what kind of information do you have to talk about there regarding Intel's Rocket Lake? Well, it's kind of an interesting situation because this CPU is getting a hell of a lot of flack. People just don't like it. We've seen some <laughs> vitriol, yeah. the extent of which I've kind of can't really recall seeing before. But, um, well, you know, let's take a look at some benchmarks. I was going to do a review for this, but because of various scheduling issues, similar to Ryzen last year, funnily enough, just didn't have the time. Uh, let's kick off by taking a look at um, Flight Simulator, I think, which yeah. is uh, essentially Rocket Lake at its absolute finest. Because, I mean, what I'm seeing here, uh, based on Will's benchmarks, is basically a 24% increase in performance over the 10900K. That's the core wow. i9 11900, uh, 11900K. And um, essentially, well, based on what I'm seeing here, it looks like the core i5 11600K is not quite as fast as 10900K on average, but has significantly better lower 1%. Huh. But uh, if you look at the frame time here, I mean... This game is so heavily CPU limited. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're doing like a low fly over um, London here. And uh, ultra settings, the terrain detail in particular. I mean, watch your video, Alex, is, yeah, my, uh, is my advice for this, because um, that not only uh, eliminates some of the GPU burden, it lessens the CPU stutter as well. But, you know, this is a CPU test, and Rocket Lake is doing extremely well here. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, pretty good stuff overall, I'd say. Uh, yeah, I'd say what so you make too. of that. I mean, this is kind of like a result that's that's it, better than expected. I think I, I even saw a Verge article about uh, how good this CPU is with Flight Simulator. I do wonder what exactly the, the difference is there, because um, in other IPC, I would say instruct like single threaded titles. Um, I think we were looking at as well when we go back to CS:GO that you also looked at there is probably less of a large leap between the last gen and the current gen. Uh, so I do yeah. actually wonder what exactly is going on in flight sim specifically, because it doesn't uh, jive with the rest of the data uh, necessarily. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, that's definitely the case. And um, I think what we're going to do now also is to look at Cyberpunk 2077 
And again, uh, Rocket Lake is doing rather well there. A similar results of Flight Simulator, actually, in that the Core i5-11600K is essentially on par with the 10900K. Nice. And in turn, it's significantly ahead of Ryzen 5000. And the narrative at the moment, of course, is that uh, Ryzen has basically matched Intel for gaming. And um, that isn't the case on this title, even with 10th gen. Uh, the tables will turn uh, quite significantly. But the reason I've started with um, Flight Simulator and Cyberpunk is that the frame rates here are basically under 60 frames per second. <laughs> so this is another narrative that's that's kind of permeating uh, the internet, which is that, you know, basically anything can run anything that's 60 frames per second or higher. But we do have these next-gen titles that are just pushing so much work that uh, even the very latest and greatest can uh, sit around 60 frames per second or lower. Um, yeah. So, yeah, these CPUs on average are kind of uh, above 60 with uh, Cyberpunk, but very definitely below with Flight Simulator. Now, the rest of the benchmarks, I mean, we can go through them in turn, but um, I want to talk about um, Rainbow Six Siege hmm. because... Well, you're, you're seeing the numbers on screen at the moment, and they're totally insane. You know, sometimes above 500 frames per second. The average on the 11900K is 457 frames per second. Now, here, the i9-10900K is actually faster than the, you know, so we've got 10th gen faster than the 11th gen. And um, Ryzen is basically uh, on par with 11th gen. It's, it's doing really, really well here. But... This is the thing. I mean, I do appreciate that esports guys want to have absolute, you know, the fastest of the fast. But, you know, comparing, you know, 457 frames per second to 480, I think the thing to do is look at the frame time graph on the right there, where, you know, in terms of that, this is actual frame persistence. And we're on like anything between sort of, you know, two to three milliseconds per frame. It's basically faster than. <laughs> uh, any monitor can update the I screen. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> but again, essentially, um, you know, all of these CPUs and much of a muchness 10th gen is basically ahead. 11th gen sits between the 10th gen i5 and i9. Ryzen is basically um, slightly slower than 10900K, but you're not going to be able to tell the difference here. I mean, this is just an extreme workload. Something that I think we do need to talk about, which kind of is curious, is um, if we take a look at Counter-Strike Go, yes. where there's, again, the frame rates here are kind of insanely high, um, but not as high as Rainbow Six. And there is actually profound dif differentiation where between Ryzen and Intel. Ryzen is so far ahead here. I mean, um, 5900X is like 21% faster than... 11900K. And you can actually see it on the graphs here, uh, that differentiation what? there. So it's kind of weird. I'm not, uh, uh, there is a theory that the L3 cache on the Ryzen's is, that's, is responsible for this. That's what I was going to tip at, because I think I saw this a bit when I upgraded from the 1700X to the 3900X in older titles. Uh, when I did, I did some like joke 
joking kind of like I'm gonna look at Halo One uh, kind of thing, and <laughs> and like yeah. the kind of older DX9 or earlier era titles seem to really like Ryzen, which I think is excellent by the way, because these kind of titles uh, are really great at ultra high frame rates. Yeah, but, but mean, the problem, just... Alex, is that all of these are ultra high frame rates. Yeah, already. <laughs> no, no, but yeah. like even the slowest CPU in the benchmark here is still above what just about any monitor, like pretty much the highest real monitor that people are buying is like 240 hertz, right? Yeah, that's about it. So, there's 360s now, but let's be honest. Oh, okay. Like, there's yeah. 360s. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're probably like 24 yeah. inches though or something, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it is almost kind of academic in a way because, I mean, let's take a exactly. look at Hitman 3 here, which um, uh, Hitman 2 had some really bizarre CPU limitation, but Hitman 3 just <clears throat> absolutely flies. Yeah. And uh, again, similar result here where the Core i5 11th gen is basically on par with uh, the i9 10th gen. And, um, but, you know, we're looking at basically, you know, the difference between i9 to i9 is like 6.7%. But when you're adding 6.7% frame rate to 234 frames <laughs> per second, then uh, yeah. it's kind of bizarre. But um, I honestly think maybe when we're talking about these high frame rate experiences, um, we shouldn't be looking at the averages. We should be looking at the lowest 1% scores. And that's basically where we take the longest frame times in the sample and then kind of put them into the buckets according to how good or how bad they are. Lowest 1%, uh, there is quite a significant difference between uh, 10th and 11th gen here. Oh, wow. Uh, you can't really see that on a graph, though. That's that's the kind of weird thing. But it is likely the, the thing that you're probably most going to feel in the experience. Um, and I guess something else we can talk about, uh, this is a benchmark which we've retired on the GPU side because it doesn't seem to work anymore. And I'm not quite sure why it still works on the CPU side. It doesn't work for me, but it does for Will, which is Classes 3. I always top out now at 65 frames per second on this. There are crisis ah, yeah. to get around it. Um, but Will seems to be able to benchmark with impunity at this one. And I find the result here fascinating. Again, I love um, this one, yeah. no real difference between 11th and 10th gen. 10th gen notionally faster by about 4%. Uh, Ryzen is actually ahead of Intel here. If you look at the frame rate averages, but the lowest 1% are, are in favor of Intel here. Interesting. So, graph that, though. It's kind but of that's bizarre. an interesting thing. Is it, I just get the feeling that the spread on the AMD Ryzen is a little bit wider in, on average. Like Sometimes you have these higher highs but lower lows, if you know what I mean. Mm, I think on a lot, have to look on at a lot of these examples. Yeah, we'd have to look at the data a bit more closely and, uh, and figure out exactly what's going on there. But um, uh, ultimately, I mean... AMD can rightly claim to be back in the thick of it with Ryzen 5000. It's up there with Intel. Yeah. Um, and of course, Intel is still on the older process and does consume more power. Um, yeah. One thing that I do find interesting is um, the situation with fast memory. They're allowing now on the cheaper boards for you to actually use your XMP profiles. So, since RAM is basically starting at 3200 megahertz, this is a big deal. But it's you're playing catch up with with Ryzen here, which yeah. has been doing that since since right. day one. But it is going to result in some fascinating things. Like um, I can well believe that an overclocked uh, budget i5 612 uh, six cores, twelve threads will mm -hmm. be up there with the i9 once properly tuned. 
Yeah. And I think that's probably where we're going to actually see some love for the 11th gen because it does seem to be at the moment flight simulator aside uh, more of a holding pattern for mm -hmm. Intel. I don't know what you make of that Alex. That's kind of the way I've seen it uh, well the Intel strategy for a while now since they've been stuck on this process just holding over until they can actually do some more generational changes. Um, that's the way I'm looking at this review when I looked over Will's notes and uh, all of everything that he's produced for it. I'm not completely yeah. excited. That's, I think, the lack of excitement. We can talk a little bit, I guess, about the review atmosphere surrounding this uh, CPU. Um, yeah. There's a lot of disappointment. Um, I can understand disappointment uh, completely well. I, maybe not some of the more hateful statements out there regarding these CPUs, uh, but... Uh, I don't get any of that. I don't understand I, don't, I, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily get it other than the fact that it's kind of a little bit funny. Um, you know, we can all laugh at some things where it's like, why does this product exist on a certain level, um, like on a theoretical level or something like that, where it just seems like a, a, another bump in the road for Intel to just release a processor because they have to. Um, that's what it feels, yeah, it feels like, like a, a gap bit. filler to me. That's yeah, what it feels yeah. like. Uh, as someone with a 10900K and now with a Ryzen 5 950X, uh, I don't feel any uh, compulsion to recommend this processor on a level to anyone who would be uh, asking me what kind of things should they upgrade to, um, especially for uh, mid-range PCs at the moment. Maybe, we'll, like you're saying, Rich, that Core i5 is maybe the sweet spot um, for tuning and uh, budget, but... At the moment, I still, for like mid-range PCs, I'm still uh, pretty happy with recommending Ryzen usually. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've got some notes here, which is basically uh, Intel have still got a lot to sort out. The fact that they've regressed from 10 cores to eight <laughs> cores uh, on an i9 product is uh, borderline unforgivable, but the performance in gaming <clears throat> is, is there. It is, you know, there or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. um, and I, but I do suspect that we will be seeing much better value lower down the, the stack. So perhaps the the kind of bad reviews for the i9 are warranted. Um, what I'm just going to say though is this kind of um, atmosphere of kind of you know kicking the uh, company when it's down, uh, coming up with controversial statements uh, to kind of make a statement about how much you particularly dislike a product. Um, Ultimately, we're in this thing, we're in this sort of industry because we love it. And if you basically just present a barrage of negativity from start to finish, you're making your audience hate yeah. something that they love. And I'm personally not particularly interested in that. I'd say that the product is, uh, in terms of 11th gen core i9, is uh, okay. It's not great. It doesn't represent a huge leap mm. over the 10th gen. But then again, you'd never see that in the CPU stakes. Arguably, the exception to the rule is uh, Ryzen 5000, which well, was... Rich, I think that the important thing, though, is that such revolutions do not come often. Yeah. And in this, yeah, exactly. In the CPU space. Like, occasionally mm. they absolutely happen, but it feels like people are almost like applying like what they expect from GPUs to the CPU side now, and that's just... Mm. So it doesn't really work here, I think. Like the, the research isn't happening at such a rate where you're going to have a revolutionary <laughs> CPU every time a new product comes out. Yeah, right. yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd say that, you know, it's a, it's a, a decent enough prod, uh, product as things stand. I wouldn't necessarily recommend buying 
a new PC based on this platform because fundamentally we've got the Alder Lake uh, processors coming uh, this year. They won't work on the motherboards that uh, that Rocket Lake uses. Yeah, you're going to need to buy a new boards to get a, you know a more future proof solution. And ultimately, with 11th gen, you're topping out at eight cores. And uh, if you're into productivity at all, you want more than that. And Ryzen just delivers that 16 cores on a mainstream socket. That's the target Intel have got to get to, because what they've got at the moment is fine but it's fundamentally limited against the competition. And they're still playing catch up on features. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm going to leave uh, uh, cool. Rocket Lake at the moment. I think it's okay. I think it's um, decent. I think at the budget end, there's going to be some interesting scenarios, but it doesn't really move the dial from 10th gen and it doesn't address any of the competitive advantages that Ryzen has. Mm -hmm. um, the spread that you're talking about there, uh, John, in terms of lowest one percent and whatnot, and and averages, something we should look at because it is interesting, but it only seems to apply to some titles. Yeah, yeah. I, that, I, I mean, I'm if curious I was to know why exactly, like what is, yeah. what is the reason for this? <laughs> I mean, based on what I'm seeing so far, um, I would still buy a Ryzen platform simply because you've got that. Uh, expandability to 16 cores, which you don't have on the Intel mainstream platform. Yeah. And for me, as somebody that's into productivity, I would definitely want that. Of course. Mm -hmm. Gaming scenario that, you know, different different story though. But yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah. Placeholder product. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the way I view it as well, too, Rich. But I think we've said enough about Intel Rocket Lake here, and let's move on to the next topic. Coming off that Intel Rocket Lake uh, review or kind of semi-review in this video, you did mention Cyberpunk there, Rich, and Cyberpunk has also gotten its kind of long-waited-for 1.2 patch coming out to consoles and PC. And currently, uh, Tom's looking at that. Uh, the video is probably yep. going to be out by the time everyone sees this DF Weekly. And uh, we'll be presenting some findings, uh, but I think... I'm going to ask you, John, about this because you've looked at it a little bit as well, at least from what Tom's posting. Uh, what is the exact change that we're seeing here in Cyberpunk 1.2? I mean, again, based on what Tom's seeing, it does seem like uh, PS4 Pro has actually seen the biggest boost out of all of them and is mostly delivering a fairly steady 30 frames per second with it still can dip in some select sequences, but it actually seems pretty solid now. Uh, whereas... Mm. Uh, the base console still seem to be struggling, and I think it. I don't think we can ever expect them to truly run great. And at this point, it's more about just fixing bugs, and and I think that's okay. Like for those base consoles, I mean, people people loved stuff like Skyrim and all the Bethesda games on last gen, and those run horrible. Uh, Grand Theft Auto games always ran bad on consoles until the GTA Five, PS4, Xbox One release. Like it's just like. These types of games have traditionally run terribly on consoles and these big mass market open world games. It got better this past gen. Uh, this is kind of a throwback to that. It's not great, but I feel like if you really care about that, you're on a more powerful machine or PC. So yeah, on the base consoles, I think we just kind of have to accept that they're never going to be completely smooth. Yeah, I don't like being so negative about it, but I... <clears throat> no. Just looking at the CPU scaling I saw on PC, I was always wondering, and what Rich looked into with his uh, Xbox One base silicon, uh, <laughs> you know, like that, that just made me wonder, like, 
is how is this even possible? They're, they're doing miracles already there. Um, yeah. But the another thing. Th oh yeah. Oh, good. No, the one thing I was going to say is that I was a little surprised to hear Tom uh, saying that the Xbox One X version is not as improved as the PlayStation 4 Pro version, um, which mm. surprises me because I do wonder exactly what kind of bottleneck we're looking at here. Uh, the way it sounded like uh, CDPR was talking about it, it sounded like a storage uh, speed issue as well as presumably a kind of getting things into memory issue as well as you know the game has a lot of things to go into memory already so that's why you would see like extremely late loading low mesh detail low texture detail constantly because there was just not enough ram to go around and getting stuff into ram wasn't easy but i look at the xbox one x and it's kind of an improvement in all those aspects over the playstation 4 pro so i do kind of wonder what is the uh, thing getting in the way there for performance on Xbox One X. Yeah. I think it's worth stressing that as we film this, uh, Tom is still working on it. And we've only yeah. got like some, hopefully yeah. some bullet notes from him and a screenshot showing <laughs> um, one of the worst performing areas on PS4 Pro. Um, well, one of the worst. It was like 24 frames per second. It's now That's hitting bad. the 30 yeah. FPS gap, yeah. which is... You know, when, if you think about it in percentage terms or millisecond huge. terms, that's actually a pretty huge optimization. <laughs> that um, is. But the Pro uh, was actually the best version right from launch, if, if memory serves. It was. On so those last-gen yeah. machines, yeah. Yeah, on the last-gen machines, yeah. So, I mean, at least there is some route forward <laughs> on the last-gen machines, seemingly for getting a, a decent experience, but it's still not perfect. Still, um, so we'll we'll see more of that in Tom's video, of course. But I did want yeah. to quickly mention to you guys: did did you check out the, the AMD benchmarks for uh, ray tracing? Uh, I did take a look at Computer Base's article at them uh, at this. I really like Computer Base, by the way. I don't think we wasn't a German outlet, but I think um, we don't talk about them too much because everything's in German, and uh, I'd be one of the few people checking them probably uh, rather <laughs> periodically. Um, but they produce amazing work, uh, Computer yep. Base. Uh, they're super thorough. Oh, yeah. And yep. they also have, I think, a really good discussion forum. Uh, it's really nice to go there and check out their stuff. But they uh, produced an article looking at the cost of using the normal kind of medium setting for ray tracing, which I'm pretty sure just turns on shadows and reflections, as well as the ultra setting, which turns on everything, excluding the psycho RTGI setting. And uh, it kind of showed a more extreme example of what we see in something like a path trace title. Um, so AMD scaled uh, kind of like half or less than half of what the equivalent uh, GPU was on the NVIDIA side. Um, so you could see like competition between like a middling range uh, Turing card and a high you know, RX 6800 XT. I don't think this is very surprising. The game was originally uh, designed all these effects, these effects, their ray count, how they work, around the budgets that work well within essentially Ampere or Turing cards, uh, which are different than what AMD has. And I think mm -hmm. this is going to just be something that we're going to have to get used to seeing in titles that use very ambitious amounts of ray tracing features. Um, so mm -hmm. that's the kind of way I look at that right now. Yeah, yeah. it's the, uh, the early adopter advantage in video. You know, basically everybody who's developing ray tracing titles would have an RTX card. Mm -hmm. uh, the chances of them having RDNA2 card are actually quite slight. I mean, you'd think CD Projekt Red, though, would have them. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> um, but yeah, the performance here is disappointing. There's still so many questions about ray tracing on the AMD side. And um, mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, it's quite interesting, a point that was made to me uh, yesterday, in fact, uh, which was uh, simply this, you know, we were talking about um, AMD pulling up at Insomniac's HQ to get <laughs> hold of their temporal super sampling algorithm for their FSR. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it was point, pointed out to me, well, maybe they could borrow their road facing <laughs> technology as well. Yeah. <laughs> because, because if, you know, again, look at uh, what um, mm-hmm. RDNA 2 is doing with uh, uh, Spider-Man Miles Morales on PS5. Yeah, it's it's far. You know, this is a far weaker part compared to anything on the PC stack, and it's doing, you know, much greater results, much it more is. effective results. It is um, just when you've got a talented developer that's directly addressing the hardware. So you know, it's we know that the hardware can do it. We know that it can produce some excellent ray tracing oh, yeah. results. Definitely, uh, but it's not scaling into the PC space for whatever reason. I guess yeah, we need to I- leave that one there then. Um, you know, one thing that we can just talk about really quickly, I talked about it a tiny bit in my um, RTX 3080 versus RX 6800 XT kind of uh, ray tracing examination video and article. And I mentioned it in the article side, at least, that there is a difference in the way these uh, GPUs accelerate things. On a technical level, uh, there is more programmability in the RDNA 2 side of things at the consoles. Um, uh, the only thing is that uh, you don't need to do that on the consoles, but if you want to, uh, you can tap into a certain level of programmability to speed up the traversal section of the ray tracing for your game if it makes sense for that use case. Maybe it won't actually speed up the game, whatever your optimization is. It's very much so use case dependent. But this is something not on the PC side uh, at all in DirectX 12 ray tracing or in Vulkan ray tracing. And so I do actually wonder if we're gonna see just over time um, DirectX ray tracing opening up a bit and allowing for a more programmable uh, like first traversal stage uh, over time, both on NVIDIA and on RDNA 2 cards. Because if RDNA 2 cards need that level of programmability to get competitive performance or more competitive performance, well, I, I would imagine AMD really wants Microsoft or the Kronos Consortium or the Kronos Group to uh, kind of implement specific optimizations for their GPUs. But we'll see what happens in the future there. Uh, But enough for that topic, let's move on. Okay, John, this one's for you because I have yet to touch this game other than on PC where I was slightly disappointed in what I kind of saw back then. And this is Octopath Traveler, uh, a kind of really quirky, cutesy, old school style RPG with an interesting aesthetic that initially released on Switch and now is also available on Xbox platforms. I played it a little bit on PC when it released back then. What are you kind of what are your first impressions there, John? Yeah, so actually we're gonna kind of set this up. We're gonna talk about three Xbox games oh that my. we tested today. Uh, basically, it's kind of cleaning up some stuff that you know we didn't get to cover in full videos. So. Good. Uh, first, I wanted to mention Octopath just because I, I, I enjoyed this game on Switch, but it always had a lot of technical issues. The image quality was poor, and more importantly, the frame rate was not optimal. As beyond a bit of slowdown, it had uh, it was 30 FPS with incorrect frame pacing. So it always felt a little bit muddy, not as smooth as it should be. So I was curious when they launched a version on another console and loaded it up and was surprised to see it's a nice smooth 60 frames per second now the resolution is massively increased it just feels like the art style really finally comes to life in a way that just looks awesome Mm -hmm. so you know not too much to say about it other than 
I only sampled a little bit at the beginning here, just the very beginning of one of the characters, just to get a feel for how it's running. And yeah, like it's a, it's a nice upgrade, I would say. So if you've not played this game, definitely check it out. It is on Game Pass, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and, that's, uh, that's news one. Yeah, how about Crash Bandicoot though? Because looking at, we've been kind of being begged for this for a while to take a look at the Xbox Series X version specifically. Um, because people were reporting frame drops or issues there regarding its performance. And what did you kind of find out there, John? Yeah, I really did not fancy doing another video on this game, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but quickly, I did actually get some frame rate numbers here. And in my experience, uh, I was surprised to see that it's it has more issues compared to the PlayStation 5 version. Hmm. Uh, and essentially, there's two issues I found. And it's not too bad, but it is there. Uh, first of all, in the cutscenes, there is more slowdown there compared to the PS5 version I found in general, uh, which isn't a huge deal. Those cutscenes are always the most demanding. It was definitely where the last gen machine slowed down, but uh, it is nice that it's really smoothed out on the PS5 and it's just not quite as smooth on the Xbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's during gameplay that's very odd. In some stages, um, I found that you get these sort of small very subtle dips into like hmm. the high 50s at random points and it always doesn't always like some sections it does repeat and others it doesn't but there is this sense that it's not quite as smooth as it should be which is uh, and i'm not really sure what's going on there uh yeah this is a weird one too because john and i were talking about this right before the video started and you know we've been looking at this next gen or this current gen of consoles for a while now. And one of the kind of returning topics is why is the frame rate technically less stable on the Xbox Series version versus PlayStation 5? Uh, We saw this uh, in, I guess, initially at launch in uh, Assassin's Creed and then a couple other titles after the fact. And I'm just looking at Tony Hawk Pro Skater right now. Um, And there's drops there on the Series version uh, that I did not see necessarily well, on PlayStation, but there's also, you know, drops there on the PlayStation side as well in different contexts. But it, it, they were just like kind of like random little off uh, uh, drops that are not explainable regarding what is happening visually on the screen. There are things that when you're looking at it as a technical reviewer that you can point out really easily why the frame rate is dropping. There's a big explosion. There's a lot of more characters. You're traversing uh the the content in a rapid pace those are things that where you usually expect stutters but um does this seem like one of those kind of less explainable cases yeah like you just don't know why i see i think that's the important thing to to distinguish here is that when we talk about oh we're surprised it runs like this on one console or the other it's not so much that we have expectations about what one should do or one should not do yeah it's that the the slowdown is sometimes it occurs in an unpredictable fashion. So like the cutscene stuff, that makes perfect sense why it's dropping frames on those consoles. And it does seem that PS5 has a slight advantage there. So it's showing slightly better performance, but that's repeatable. You understand why it's happening. But these other types of dips that we've been seeing in other random games, especially in Unreal Engine games, weirdly yeah. enough, uh, there isn't always like a visible, like on-screen consumer facing <laughs> reason for why it's dropping. And that's why we're confused. It's yeah. nothing, you know, if even if these machines were 100% identical uh, and this was happening on one and not the other, it doesn't matter which one it was happening on. 
it's the same thing. It's like, why is it slowing down here? There's no obvious reason for it. So it is, it is a bit strange. So yeah, um, definitely sure. something going on, on on there that has popped up more often than I would have expected. Uh, and like like you said, Alex, it's not the traditional style of, of drop in performance where it's really easy to understand why it's dropping. It just seems to be dropping for <laughs> inexplicable reasons. So maybe yeah. it's like an OS thing. Maybe there's some kind of like weird uh, API inefficiencies. I really can't say right now, but so it's not bad or anything, but yeah, for my money, you know, the PS5 version is the best version of Crash 4. Yeah. So yeah, um, I would say it, PC, but that requires always online, right? So that can't be oh, the best. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's another, that's a very unfortunate thing. Exactly. Yes, that's technically a, the PC oh. version could be superior, but it is uh, limited What's by up? that, which is unfortunate. Yeah. It is very unfortunate. But anyway. But, uh, let's move should... on to your next title here, John. And this is one that we kind of mentioned a while back and one I'm excited about because I have a very strong opinion on this topic. And that's Samurai Showdown at 120 FPS. What is that like in your sampling, John? So this was another thing. We just I just wanted to mention this briefly because I, I really like this feature and I hope we see it. So the reason I think, first of all, this only receives this 120 hertz update on Xbox, and I assume this has to do because I think it's it might still be a backwards compatible game. Yeah, maybe actually. And on PS4, remember. PS5, that BC, you can't do that essentially. Like, there's no mm-hmm. way to get 120 hertz in a backwards compatible PS4 game. So this is only on the Xbox. Uh, but man, like again, every time I'm seeing 120 hertz these days. It just reminds me more and more that it's it's absolutely just this is the new target. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm so happy that consoles can reach this now because on the PC this has been possible for a long, long time. Uh, though getting the steady 120 <laughs> is not not the simplest thing on more no. demanding games, but it's really nice to see this come to consoles and playing a fighting game at this, especially on again. Uh, I think I mentioned the Tony Hawk video with the, the LG CX or C10 OLED, when you use that in HDR mode with um, mm-hmm. uh, the black, black frame, frame insertion cranked up to high at 120 hertz, the picture brightness barely drops to a, a significant amount. It's still very bright, but you get absolute perfect motion with like basically zero blur. Mm-hmm. So when you play a fighting game like that, it just feels otherworldly. It's really, really good. And it, it finally gets back to an experience. It's like, reminds me of playing fighting games on a CRT, but at double the frame rate that I was used to because most fighting games traditionally aim for 60. Yeah. So I know there's questions as far as like how doubling the frame rate might impact, you know, hardcore play in a fighting game. Mm-hmm. I would actually like to see more from the fighting game community maybe on that. But mm-hmm. as far as Sam show goes, like it just feels incredible at 120 yeah. hertz. So. I want to see more 120 frames per second fighting games. That's the exact way I feel about it too. And I hope uh, that we see a transition there in the next five years, hopefully, uh, into the like uh, professional fighting game community circuit of people lugging around really cheap 120 hertz screens. Uh, that's what I would love to see. Uh, Absolutely. But, yeah. Kind of uh, let's uh, finish off that topic there and move on to the next one. So last week, we spent a lot of lot of time talking about the rumored closing of the PlayStation Network stores, the kind of HTML version of that that you can access for PS3, PS Vita, and PlayStation Portable. And 
It was confirmed this week to be happening and much to our disappointment essentially, but I think this is a topic very close to John and Mai's heart because we're really big on video game preservation. I know Rich is too, to, to a degree, of course, uh, but John, what is your kind of reaction to this closing here? Well, I mean, the reaction, it's just as bad as I had hoped. Yeah. Or it's just as bad as I had feared, <laughs> I should say, not as I hoped, Hopes, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> you do say um, yeah. But I guess the good news from it is that, as I kind of suspected, they, they are still enabling users to download what you already own. Mm-hmm. So that's good. That, that feature is not gone yet, and hopefully yes. that remains online. Uh, but it is really a shame that this entire like digital library is just going away like this and from customers. Uh, and in fact, you know, there's several developers now mm-hmm. that were still even working on Vita games for that digital store. There is a, still a dedicated audience there, believe it or not. Uh, and those are, you know, smaller games that can sell fewer numbers, but still they get something out of it. And because Sony's ramped down the Vita cart manufacturing, mm-hmm. uh, this was the only way. And now all of a sudden that's also being taken away. Yeah, so this is, this is it's, uh, a shame. it's a real shame. I think it's a big shame for those in development games. And I also think it's a big shame for anyone involved in the retro community who wants to gain access to titles on it for, you know, reasonable money because physical media uh, becomes more expensive over time. And a lot of things were never printed uh, in physical media, like these Vita uh, uh, memory card uh, kind of things. Uh, to a great degree. So games are just going to get more expensive over time now as a result of this closure. Oh, and yeah. that's something I'm not very happy about as well because these are collections you know, of games beyond the emulation uh, and piracy angle uh, that on original hardware are pretty cool. And if you have to shell out more than 60 euros or 70 euros to get a game, uh, I find that a bit of a shame. Yeah, yeah it was really bad for the uh, PlayStation 1 selection as well because they yeah. had a lot of PS1 games on there. Uh, many of which are very expensive on disc. And, you know, if you wanted to just purchase it in a convenient fashion for a lot of people, this was a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. So not yeah. necessarily my preferred way, but the emulation was good on PS3. Played PlayStation games very well. You could also do it on Vita and PSP. Um, and yeah. then they basically discontinued this option entirely with the PlayStation 4 generation, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, because it seems like the current Sony isn't too interested in preserving or making available classic games, yeah, which is I, a real shame. It is a real shame. Um, and I do want to, just for Audi's sake, to say again that the closure of the store is not uh, Chicken Little style, the world is ending, but no. it is one step on a road to these games maybe not being downloadable one day because what, you know, the, the corporate logic mindset of what's the purpose of keeping servers up for, for a DOA or for an already dead product or no longer sold product. Um, I do think that is something that can happen and there's maybe precedent for it in the past. So that's something we should be worried about and something we should keep talking about over time because game preservation is very important to us. It is depressing. It is, yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's numerous problems here. Um, it just does seem to be the case that Sony isn't really taking care of its own legacy. That's the, you know, rights or wrongs, that's the message that's being sent out here, which mm-hmm. is that, okay, we're, we're closing that chapter. It, it, you know, we're not mm-hmm. going to give you access to those games anymore. The only reason we are going to have access to a bunch of uh, PlayStation 3 titles is because 
the system was hacked <laughs> and you can you can download pirate versions of the game that's that's not really an acceptable route forward for present pre preservation and uh, it really makes me sad and and john you're absolutely right um uh, PlayStation 3 ran, uh, I think, a software emulator for PlayStation 1. Mm. Why, why isn't that PlayStation 1 emulator ported to uh, PlayStation 4 or PlayStation 5? It, it never happened. Why? I don't, I, I don't get it. And the PlayStation 1 is such an important system for the, um, it's you know, the, the evolution of gaming. In, in and general. it's still great. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know... Just kind of turned our back on it with uh, with the with the closure of the stores. The last way to officially buy some titles that, as you say, are now basically beyond reach as as physical purchases. Yeah, and you know it's it's almost like encouraging piracy of those old systems because it's the only way to access some truly great. Games. I'm just glad and I have my $15 copy of Klonoa that I bought back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, 50. I think we're just going to keep going over old ground if we continue this. But, yeah. Um, uh, but fundamentally, um, you know, PlayStation 3, what's going on with that? Because um, it's a system that's notoriously hard to emulate, to, to, to bring those titles forward to newer systems. But, you know, there's a community out there doing that on the PC. And it's good. Sony, yeah, yeah. And Sony would have access to far better documentation that know the cell processor yeah. far better than, uh, than that community. It's within their means to be able to, uh, to bring yep. those titles to, to later platforms. It's just not happening and it's really sad. Yeah, but let's move on to the next news item or actually the retro corner here. Uh, to talk a little bit about hopefully more positive retro news. So yeah, not that big of a retro corner this week uh, because it's kind of this slower period right before the holidays, but I saw some interesting news just the other day that I'm really excited about. I think everyone here has less experience with this title than perhaps I do, but Rome Total War is being remastered. Uh, I'm a really big fan of the Total War series, Mm -hmm. And they've been kind of producing uh, these games, this large series, Medieval Rome, um, you know, Shogun, as well as now the new Warhammer games, like constant yearly, almost yearly releases for a while now, uh, since around 2014, it feels like. And I like that they found the time to go back and look at this one title, which is a real classic for them and kind of bring it into the modern era. What, what I'm looking at, the they have a really nice trailer that they put out, almost like DF style work, where they're showing left and right hand footage of the old version and the new version side by side here. And uh, the big difference, I would say, beyond the improved graphical quality for like uh, textures and lighting uh, and model quality is that the UI interface has been updated. <laughs> the problem with older games from this era, of course, is that they were not designed around high DPI usually, and they were not designed around widescreen 16 by 9, 16 by 10, or 21 by 9. So that's like that was the part of the trailer that actually got me excited the most. <laughs> as weird as that sounds, but because I really like going back to older RTS titles, but I'm always pretty disappointed when I have to be in that like four by three, really wonky, either really large uh, kind of HUD that is huge, like I saw it back in Age of Empires 3, or extremely tiny HUD uh, <laughs> because it doesn't scale correctly. So that's one thing I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, I don't know. Have you, have you looked at Supreme Commander lately, actually? I'm wondering how that holds up. I, I feel like that had really good multi-monitor support back in the day. I, I 
imagine that's one of the few titles from that time period, along with uh, World in Conflict, that would have oh, been yeah. generated. Oh, that's a massive title. Um, you know that they would have like looked towards the future for the way computers going. Uh, so I feel like those would be better. Uh, those are some titles that you know I haven't done a more retro themed video in a while. Um, but there's a lot of RTS titles I really like. They've they've gotten some sometimes really positive uh, response on the channel, other times less. So it's always a little bit hard to balance uh, which things we would like to cover. Uh, but I would like to go back and look at something like uh, Company of Heroes, World in Conflict, or Supreme Commanders, like John's talking about, these kind of huge technological releases that were just like, when you look at something like Com uh, Company of Heroes, it was kind of like playing graphically like a Call of Duty game in this massive overworld perspective. Just really cool graphics and technology for the time period that deserves a DF treatment if uh, if anything does. Maybe that'll come around when Age of Empires releases, if, if there's any time or if it's reasonable. But yeah. that's something I would like to look at, yeah. Another quick thing for the retro corner that has been, it's bothering me this year, <laughs> is it feels like shipping costs are out of control now. Oh my gosh. First, in the UK, obviously, Brexit caused the shipping cost to become so high that it, I can't buy anything from there anymore. Mm. That's not worth it. It's slow and expensive. Uh, the U.S. has always been bad. And that's not getting better. Uh, and now Japan is increasing their, their shipping costs to Europe as well. Huh. So I feel like slowly but surely all of these countries are taking away our options for getting stuff, which is... Uh, <sighs> It's 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 a little bit frustrating, I have to admit. So yeah, that uh, is I'm a... sure there's the reasons behind it, but as somebody that you know that that does import stuff regularly, um, it's not good. I might yeah. have to find other more creative ways to make this work. I get what you mean. Maybe it's because of a certain boat in a certain canal. We'll 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 we'll, we'll have to no look at that no later. no. It's not it's not due to that. This is something they, they seem to have had planned. But yeah, yeah, man, these shipping costs. It's uh. It's rough. Yeah. Well, I guess stand to wait, John. You can send your UK stuff to my house. I mean, uh, yeah. Oh, we do need we do need stuff for what's in the box, Rich. So this is the true. The problem is, is I would be sending good things to your house. That's the problem, <laughs> isn't it? You know, it? It might not work. The mailman yeah. might be maybe become confused and just toss it in the trash. He's like, this looks this this is too heavy. This is too good. This feels exactly. like quality. Um, I've got a, I've got a package to send to Audi, and he wants me to include those those crazy frog pills in the package. <laughs> Like, you want the back. You're serious. That might get flagged. Does actually, yeah. Well, it would be some kind of you know toxic biohazard. Exactly. Slap it on. Yeah. Yeah. I should. I, I will have to declare it as uh, hazardous goods. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> detritus. I, digital I, detritus. Digital yeah. detritus. Yeah. The <laughs> the sub channel that DF is setting up. Um, I guess the last thing that I want to mention uh, for this little retro quarter here is I've been plugging away at my PC and my uh, MIDI to game port uh, audio. Uh, um, cable kind of adapter came in and I was able to hook up the SC55 to my Windows 98 machine and I did load up Doom 2 and it sounds amazing. Uh, the only problem is I was talking with John the other day, I did not grab the other cables because I just didn't think. Uh, but So all I get is MIDI sound right now and I don't get the rest of my sound. But in the future, um, I probably will introduce this um, PC into DF content maybe around I don't know, Diablo 2's 
uh, remake coming out that seems pretty appropriate or whatever the next uh, Command & Conquer remake will be, that'll definitely show up there, but stay tuned. Okay, and moving on, we're going to be talking about the projects that we've been working on this week, some uh, behind-the-scenes tales, and I'm um, looking at the docket here, <laughs> and it begins with uh, Alex's Game Pass woes. Yes. Uh, so, well, why don't you talk us through that, Alex, because I presume here that we're going to be talking about yeah. the great Steam versus Game Pass head-to-heads <sighs> that you did oh, on boy. The Evil Within and Near Autobata, where you basically rewrote internet wisdom. Yeah, I guess the thing is, um, I think I need to talk about my expectations first a little bit because I think there was a negative backlash to that video that I was a little surprised about. Um, people tr tried to shoebox my commentary into a Steam versus Game Pass versus Microsoft Store debate, which it has a little bit of that in regarding, I guess, the ability to download this game and the ability to modify its files. Um, but Part of my expectation when a game is re-released in a new form uh, years later and has been touched at, the code has literally been touched for some reason, I do have certain expectations regarding what has been changed in the title, specifically large grievances. And as a PC developer, I think nowadays it is your responsibility to look at the PC gaming wiki if you're going to re-release a title to see what everyone's writing there to see what the problems are. So let's look at another title that we looked at earlier this year, and that's Crisis Remastered. I'm gonna consider that essentially a re-release of Crisis 2007. Um, if I look at the changes that they made versus what is on the PC gaming wiki, my kind of reaction to that in the end, I might've been happy with like the ray tracing and Spogey, but I was pretty disappointed in the large uh, unchanged issue of CPU performance primarily uh, being single threaded. That was, all throughout my review. Now let's scroll forward again to uh, Game Pass releases of Evil Within and Near Automata. On a technical level, the biggest problems with those titles were not some random thing like there's no first person mode or that there's no FOB slider. Uh, it was the fact that they have a constant stuttering that requires external tools to change. If this not, is not changed in the port, this new report that I'm supposed to be excited about, um, then I'm going to be very disappointed. And that's just my personal stance. So if it's not by default better, I don't see the point, uh, especially regarding large grievances. I don't find things like HDR or a slightly higher resolution HUD or fidelity effect sharpening to be uh, extremely interesting things that would make me say, go out and try this title on Game Pass. Um, that's kind of the way I see it. I don't know if that makes anyone in the audience happy, but that's it. Um, one thing I've noticed um, after the fact is that after I produced my video, and I should probably update the article now, is that Caldean has actually made a workaround to allow for Farmod to work with the Game Pass version of Nier Automata. Uh, so <laughs> this is a good thing. That does change my verdict technically on Nier Automata regarding its modability, but it does not change the fact that I'm still very disappointed that you have all these years and you don't change the glaring issue. Um, so that's about it. That's all I really have to say. It sounds a little vitriolic again, but I was really worked up about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, from my perspective, um, there was a time where I was installing Forza Horizon 3 on my PC where it simply would not install. And I had to reinstall Windows to I actually get, get it to work. And 
I, I still have trust issues with the Windows Store download process. Mm-hmm. I'm never entirely sure as to whether a game I'm going to download is actually going to work. And, um, you know, the whole kind of process of uh, putting files in a folder that I can't access, that's just sort of raises red flags for me. See, it's not what PC is about. There's this, there's this sense when you're using a lot of these Windows Store-based apps that your button presses are <laughs> registered somehow. I get that, yeah. It happens constantly, and there's this feeling like you're just clicking on an empty UI that's not connected to anything somehow. Yeah. And it happens so often that I... I don't know. There's a delay to it. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes th- it does. But it really is this trust issue with this stuff where it just is not pleasant to use. You can't trust it. The files, the way they get locked onto the hard drive, like there's so much about this that I just hate and I just don't want to use it. I think for me, the biggest issue, I've had to do what Rich has done, by by the way, before reinstall Windows I have to, to get a game to, I, to actually I had install to do this the store. Or more like, I ended up just not doing the thing because I didn't feel like reinstalling <laughs> at the time, and then it worked when I did reinstall later. I think uh, <laughs> I think I even mentioned this in one of my videos once before that I couldn't get it working. Um, that was re- that was actually regarding the Gears 4. I couldn't get Gears 4 working again after a while. Um, but another thing that I've noticed too on the store is the double packaging of a download, uh, like where when you want to update oh. a game, it takes up double the space on a hard drive. This happens with Killer Instinct and Flight Simulator, I'm pretty sure. Um, so if the game is 80 gigabytes, when you download an update, it like repackages the entire game to the side, and you now have 160 gigabytes of mm-hmm. space taking up on your hard drive. And if you don't have this other 80 gigabytes reserved, which a lot of people maybe don't do on smaller SSDs, you can't update your game, right? Which Will is something, Will's had to deal with this for Flight Simulator, which we want to include in our benchmarks because it's a big game. So this is an issue. Um, I just think if they're gonna continue doing Game Pass on PC, which I'm fine with the service existing, I don't know how often I'll take advantage of it uh, beyond my review process, uh, but, I want them to change the way downloading is done and the way you access titles. I don't want to click on things in the store. I also, want something different. I mentioned that I couldn't even get the Game Pass app working on my PC. Yes. And it seems I'm not alone because uh, I received a lot of messages from people asking, like, did you ever fix that? I have the same problem. Yeah. Like, it, it does seem to be a relatively common problem. And, you know, again, I, I'm not huge into this kind of thing, but... I will say the Game Pass experience on the Xbox is very, very seamless and smooth. It works yeah. really well. But on the PC, it's bad. Yeah, <laughs> it needs I, to be improved. Yeah, that store experience. But I, I think that's enough for me ranting about Games Pass. Another thing that I did cover this week, or by the time you see this video, I will have covered it, is Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 being released for Xbox Series S, X, and PlayStation 5. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with this title on every single platform i played it on even the original xbox one x version which is just like a sweet 60 fps um, i really like that arcade response and the um the newer versions i think the big selling point for them is not the enhanced graphics which are kind of just on some level they're just like maybe artistic differences um, i feel but it's really this 120 fps mode and the enhanced loading uh, the, the loading is not so big of a difference in comparison to other titles we've seen, uh, but it's still enough to make restarting the map 
uh, to kind of get back into the action after you mess up that much more enjoyable, especially on something yep. like PlayStation 5, which was the Three fastest. times faster. Three times faster. And um, I think the if anyone, even if you're on the little lowly Xbox Series S here, uh, the 120 <laughs> FPS mode is the way to play. It is so much better than 60 FPS. And uh, that's kind of all I have to say about that. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, your Doom VR experience, John, because yeah. I really enjoyed that video. And uh, I also liked Alex's Cortana-like presence there. <laughs> In the background. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that was kind of a let's play format, I guess you could say. Cause I just wanted to try something new. Like, I, I haven't actually ever done this, like, live capture green screen VR style thing. And I know streamers and stuff, people doing this all the time. Yeah, Ian's, Ian's VR yeah. corner is all about this, right? Uh, but for me, it was the first time doing it. So it was actually quite a lot of setup to get everything into position to even make this work. And I just kind of viewed it as like almost like a virtual tour. Like I've done VR videos before, like for Half-Life Alex, for instance. And that was presented in a more standard way. Where here, I just wanted to see, all right, can I just like do this in real time and discuss what I'm seeing with Alex piped into my ears? Uh, I even set up my second webcam pointed at me in VR so Alex could see what I was doing yep. while also sharing what I was doing in the game with him. So I was sharing two feeds with Alex. Uh, <laughs> I had all these different cables and cameras and lights set up and everything just trying to go. And uh, it was fun. It actually it worked good. out pretty well. And, you know, it was, again, it's a kind of a surface level video, just discussing impressions. And there wasn't much to say about like things like performance because the performance is good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but other than that, it was it was neat to see, uh, even if some elements of it were perhaps not as ambitious as I would have liked. And it seems like the PC mods still have um, some advantages there available. But still, that, what, I had a fun experience with that. One thing I want to talk about is uh, John and I, while we were recording it, I didn't have access to the game audio necessarily. And John didn't either because he had to be no. able to hear me and all these other things. Yeah. Um, so watching the after John produced it, I realized <laughs> I was complaining about Doom 3's audio for some of its weapons. Uh, I love that I was just randomly complaining about that. And then they actually changed the weapon audio in Doom yeah. 3. And it's not even the Trent Reznor audio. Nope. It's something else entirely, uh, which I found <laughs> really interesting that they would go back and do that. But they must have like picked up these guns uh, all these years later in the VR experience where it's like very tactile and they realized like, man, shooting that machine gun kind of sucks. Uh, <laughs> that so, original sound so is not that, good. That's like, it's like a typewriter that is stuttering, the original one. It's pretty <laughs> bad, uh, but not that Doom 3 shotgun. Let me tell you about that shotgun. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny that they did that after the fact, yeah. I think uh, from my perspective, stuff I've been working on this week, um, there is going to be a new DF developers uh, produced thanks to sponsorship from Barclays, which uh, is an interesting project, an indie game, next-gen only, uh, which we shall hopefully see fairly soon. It's been in development for so long, but it's been de uh, delayed and delayed for various reasons. Uh, but that is hopefully going to reach its conclusion soon. I also took a quick look at um, Ratchet & Clank on PlayStation oh, 5, yeah. which is basically, apart from FMVs, locked to 60 frames per second now and just transforms nice. the game. And uh, kind of brings us back full circle, really, because the original... <laughs> Ratchet and Clank, upon which this remake was based, yeah. is a 60 frames per second experience. So that, yes. was, that was quite as, fun as was see. often the case on PlayStation 2, where 60 FPS was kind of the default frame rate for most games, I'd say. More mm -hmm. like 60, 70% of the library targets that. 
That's such a good thing. And I'm hoping that's that's kind of the inertia we have already for this current gen. I yep. hope that it stays up. One thing John and I were joking about the other day, uh, because there is a little bit of history there regarding the Ratchet and Clank, and I think that's what Rich was um, mentioning, is that you know Insomniac came out with a statement that consumers don't care about 60 FPS at one point in time due to the market research regarding it. Um, so they were producing 30 FPS titles for a while. But in the back of my mind, I was always wondering if that was just because like the CPU limitations of the time were, or maybe even the GPU limitations of those, like the PS3, were the, somewhat, were getting in the way of their actual ambitions for their titles. Uh, and it, it, it wasn't actually like a, we only produce 30 FPS because people don't care about 60 FPS thing. Uh, I always did wonder in the back of my mind if that's the reason why, but yeah. That's kind of all I got to say yeah, about that. That is, an, that is an interesting topic. I think I'm going to have to revisit that uh, mm -hmm. state, it's a, it's, statement that was made we, at we the should, time. We should be fair to Insomniac again that the market research at the time probably did kind of support <laughs> that. Because if you wanted decent visuals on that generation of consoles, you were usually going to sacrifice frame rate to get there. And Yeah, you are. I think in time, people have started to once again clamor for higher frame rates. Like the HD sparkle is over, even though you know we're Thankfully. still pushing that as well. Uh, so high frame rates are important again, thankfully. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think the other thing about that was uh, we were moving from 480 to 720p, yeah. and um, that was actually quite a big, big well, leap. Rich, the thing and, though to, to remember with you're talking Insomniac, their yeah, first the couple Ratchet and Clank games on the PS3 were 60 FPS, and in <laughs> fact, the first one even has parallax occlusion maps while it's running like, at 60 FPS with. I don't, unbelievably it looks, it impressive looks so visuals yeah it's yeah. so good looking and 60 so it's so weird that that they kind of changed that as they went further in because the later games don't actually really look better i would say <laughs> uh, i think yeah. you know with this generation we you know we've got 4k where you don't really need to render at 4k i no. mean in, yeah. in actual fact insomniac have proven quite spectacularly with uh, miles morales spider-man you don't. You can be at sixty. You can still do ray tracing, and you know clarity may be, may not be quite as pin sharp as the four K option, but it still looks really really good. And I just love the way that users are able to choose. That's, that's yeah. key for me. Choice, yeah. But uh, I think that's the end of our kind of look back at our work weeks content, and let's move on to the last and final section, our QA. I don't know if you've covered this topic before. I think we have. Um, but what do you guys think the next PSVR headset will have in resolution and uh, hertz? <laughs> uh, first gen PSVR, only 1080p, had the OLED, uh, very low resolution. And uh, that question is from Kevin Mill. So uh -huh. what are you expecting from uh, PSVR 2, John? So I think a lot has changed since then. So at the time when PSVR was being developed, that resolution was pretty typical in, in the developing PC VR space. For sure. And, you know, since then, we're still fighting that resolution <clears throat> battle. But I think we will definitely have a higher resolution panel in there. That's, that's a given. But I actually suspect we're going to see a decrease in the refresh rate uh, because the PSVR goes for 120. And in the PC space, a lot of headsets have kind of targeted lower refresh rates uh to great success actually where it's still high but it's it's a little bit more conceivable for the hardware to hit like say 80 or 90 hertz versus 120 yeah and it might make sense as well on a console <clears throat> to target a slightly lower refresh because on psvr 
it is 120, but most games use asynchronous time warp. So like they might output 120 hertz, you get 120 hertz head tracking, uh, but the actual game is updating at half that, and you mm -hmm. get that kind of double image effect. So um, even if it was a reduced uh, refresh rate, which it may or may not be, we don't know. Yeah, it'll still look much smoother and cleaner in motion than it did on the original PSVR. But beyond, you know, it's for me, it's like it's the headset is going to be a big deal. I hope it's more comfortable as well, but. It's more like what they're doing in the in the um, the tracking controller? space and yeah. the hand controllers because this is why PSVR feels dated compared to like a high end PC VR setup because in on PC you have full room tracking on all the best solutions uh, the hand stuff especially from yeah. Oculus is so good like it just feels so one to one so responsive uh, stuff like Half Life Alex just wouldn't work without that Boneworks wouldn't work without that the PSVR Move system it's not nearly accurate enough it not even close and it doesn't even track the headset well in, in a walking around in a space so i feel like a lot of console players may only ever have experienced like half the vr experience like some amazing examples on there of course like astrobot just so good but it's more of a seated vr experience but once you get to that standing room scale full motion kind of experience uh it's transformative and I'm positive that's exactly what Sony wants to deliver with PSVR 2. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's going to be kind of a big deal and, and really change, further change uh, people's perceptions of it. Because PSVR, I think, has pretty good buzz overall. And it was pretty successful. And I mean, VR is not exploding, but it continues to find some success. Yeah. Mm. Um, Specs-wise, I kind of think that they're going to keep the 120 hertz, if only for backwards compatibility. Oh, Rich. Yeah. Oh, dang. yeah. I give that whole spiel, but you're, compl <laughs> but you're completely right. Dang it. Yeah. You're, you're right. But, um, yeah, um, I hope they keep the OLED screen. Um, they didn't mm -hmm. on Oculus Quest 2, and uh, I'm not particularly happy with that. That's um, true. But, Same with know, the Rift I, S as well. They switched to LCD. And it yeah. is much sharper than the original Rift, but you lose the deeper black levels. So it's like it's like a side grade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, I just want to see a higher resolution screen. I don't think, the, you know, resolution is hugely important. I think the internal rendering resolution of the game is is actually a lot more important than the actual resolution of the screens. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, really looking forward to seeing what they've got there. I just want OLED. Uh, 120 hertz would be nice. And, well, I guess I'm just, I don't know. I think it is going to be aligning with the PC space. It just makes a yeah, lot of sense. Absolutely. And that's what the controllers certainly seem to be heading mm -hmm. in. Uh, next question here. I'm going to lump them together. Yeah. Uh, it's possibly one for you, Alex. Uh, basically, the same point being made by Trans Tech Girl and uh, note here from Audi. Rich must pronounce this <laughs> yes. name. Uh, Gula Sermitandadea. That was not oh. bad sounding. I don't think that was bad. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> basically, the question is this. Um, do you intend to examine any of the new planetary and lighting techniques in Elite, Dan Elite Dangerous Odyssey? Uh, it's apparently very, very impressive, but it is in a closed beta stage. Alex. Yeah. I've been following Elite Dangerous basically since the original Kickstarter, uh, the David Braben Kickstarter, all those years back. And uh, I'm a, actually, you know, 
I do like Elite quite a bit. Uh, it's a little bit, uh, I saw a recent really good take. I think it was in, might've been PC Gamer. It was Nat Clayton who wrote the article about, uh, there's like a kind of, it has a less interesting universe than other sci-fi spaceship games, Elite, but it's been doing a lot of great things behind the scenes all these years and it deserves maybe a little bit more credit. Um, you know, like No Man's Sky and like Star Citizen get all the headlines, but Elite Dangerous is kind of like piddling away in the background doing cool stuff on its own. Um, I do think I would like to take a look at it. Uh, it is possibly less interesting than something like No Man's Sky or Star Citizen in terms of ambition, but that doesn't make it any less cool because you are finally now, you know, engaging with third person or first person character models of other players. Uh, for the longest time, it was taking the strictly classic elite, or I would say like X4 style kind of thing where you would actually just, what you were was a ship. That was it. You weren't actually a person <laughs> in a ship, uh, which is funny, uh, but that's how these games were for the longest time. Um, now it's kind of gone more into the immersive first person experience with your hands and seeing other players. Uh, I think that's a big step. I don't know how well integrated it is because this is something that the game was not originally designed around. So, but that's all things I would like to take a look at for sure, yeah. Okay, interesting question here from uh, William Kendall. Some of the team have spoken in the past about console face-offs and pixel counting being the low-hanging fruits of DF. Well, not sure that's the case, but as we move closer to a potential post-resolution age filled with various upscaling and image reconstruction techniques, do you foresee a time when the team no longer makes this type of content? What would you like to make instead? John. Well, I think it's more about changing the way that we discuss these things. And this is something I think we're exploring right now is how do you talk about image quality in the modern sense? Because at this point, with all these techniques, dynamic resolution scaling, and all the other methods for reconstructing an image, I kind of feel like that base pixel count just isn't important anymore. Like it's a data point and there is something interesting to it, but there has to be another way to determine the average picture level between different versions and, and just sort of give people an impression of how sharp, how clear it looks. Because even with a, even if two games have the same core pixel count they may have wildly different image quality so you know saying oh this game's native 4k and so is this one one might be extremely aliased and have tons of shimmering but the other will look like a cgi film uh there's so it's so just saying that they're both the same resolution doesn't really even tell us anything that important i mean it's again it's just a data point but it's no longer as important as it used to be in terms of just that number being the be all end all it's everything else here's the thing a few years back i presented this question to the chief to the team which was essentially this let's imagine that the new playstation and the new xbox come along and there are no differences at all whatsoever we're kind of almost reaching that point now if we're being realistic about it, it is yeah. you know, essentially just um uh minor variations in image quality and um, performance, slight performance changes. Sometimes a game can be entirely identical. So if that's the case, you know, how could you be interesting? And that was kind of almost where Digital Foundry reached a turning point where we just stopped doing comparisons for comparison's sake. There's a lot of comparisons we don't do, and it's more about what is actually interesting about the game 
And uh, if yeah. you look at, you know, basically a lot of the content that we do now, when there's a brand new game that we're really excited about, we're really excited about how many, uh, you know, how many frames per second it's running or what the pixel count is. We're interested in the game and, and that's what well, we're trying to get across. So this is an interesting point. And I, this this explains, people always wonder, like, why do you talk about this topic in one video, but not this uh, this topic in another video? And the reason is, is what matters varies from game to game. If we load up a game and the frame rate's all over the place, then the frame rate becomes a huge part of that topic. And that's interesting. If you load up a game that's pretty much perfect, then that's not that interesting, not really, you know, you just discuss it quickly, move on. You're looking for other points to discuss. Yes. Uh, so just like doing a rote, here is the exact ABC of every single thing. It's not interesting to us to produce that. And it's not that useful overall. So yeah. it does kind of vary uh, from game to game, at least for me. I, I want to yeah. just mention uh, something off the top of what John said at the beginning of what you just said, John. That you were describing that the numbers, the base numbers, maybe are not so important anymore. And I also want to kind of stress the fact that the way we throw numbers out there can be deceiving, uh, not of our own intention, but uh, if we describe what lowest number we counted in a game, uh, which by the way, the way we sample a game's resolution is not some sort of mathematical model that samples every single frame out there. It's so subjective of which frames we choose and uh, you know, kind of how often we're counting. This is the truth for anyone doing this. This is work. true for this any single person is. out there who's counting uh, resolution that isn't doing some sort of statistical analysis of this. Um, and you know, when we say the lowest resolution, it can give off an extremely negative like opinion or look at a game. Uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater, uh, I just took a look at it. And I guess if you were to uh, look at that Xbox Series uh, S version, and I did say like, oh, I can see it scaling a little bit more often in comparison to the other titles, um, uh, where I counted 720p in one moment or something like that. But at the same time, I immediately try and say after the fact that that is what I counted, but the experience of 120 FPS and the scaling is like the, the 120 FPS experience is worth the level of scaling you're seeing on screen. It's not egregious or extremely negative looking or something that you wouldn't want to play. But you know, if you throw out any one of these numbers, these lower end scale numbers that you count, and they could be one-off frames, um, then sometimes there's, a reaction in the audience that I don't like about saying that this version of the game is not good because we managed to count a slightly lower resolution on one version. Uh, I don't like that atmosphere like around that, the game. That's a yeah. part of the audience that will never be happy. If, yeah. you're, if you're just there for that kind of uh, back and forth console warring, like that's not the purpose of the videos. Yeah. Which I'm, I know, you know, it's just that's at least that's not the intention from yeah. me and from you at yeah, this that's, point. That's not my intention. And I'm still like on a weirdly, I don't know why I'm interested. I'm still interested in the differences between a PlayStation 5 and an Xbox Series X version because there are API differences there, even if the hardware is not so radically different this time around. Um, so I'm still interested in seeing, you know, what we'll see regarding software implementations across the board. Um, but it's not going to be as interesting. And like Rich said, uh, when you posed that question to us a while back about what do we do uh, in, in 
if, if these councils are not too different, if the content is not too interesting due to differences anymore. And I think we've done a really good job of uh, exploiting what we find interesting in our content. Uh, I'm really interested in like tech focus. I really do want to look back at older games. I want to do older cross comparisons of games or even just taking a look at a modern game, not through the lens of its performance, but through its technology, what it's doing that is particularly interesting. So, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, that's the, that's the way I kind of view that. Yeah. And console yeah, comparisons I mean, used to be interesting. Yeah, they used <laughs> really to be very, interesting. very interesting. Yeah. But yeah, these days less so. That is, that is definitely the case. I mean, yeah, there's so many examples of content that I could uh, raise as, uh, you know, examples of, it's just about the game rather than the comparison. Red Dead Redemption 2, Metro Exodus, so many titles, you know, Death Stranding. Sometimes, you know, platform exclusives don't have a comparison point. That doesn't mean we're not going to cover them. Far from it. We, we're really excited about these games and want to talk about them. That's the bottom line. Um, and actually, uh, I'm going to move on to a question from OTAPS, which is kind of uh, related to this, which is, uh, given how technically focused the team is, are you able to enjoy modern video games for what they are without looking for imperfections or analyzing performance? Uh, I'd say that that's pretty easy to answer, John. Um, yeah, I still can enjoy <laughs> them, but it is... it. it it can't. It depends on where the distractions are. Yeah, uh, I do. I do really have a, an issue with enjoying like uncapped frame rates that are unstable. Like that. Right. It's yeah. It's something that's always bothered me for years, and the reason I always harp on it is because it's a personal pet peeve of mine. Just it's so obvious to me. Yeah. Um, it really sticks out. So I, I that can impact my enjoyment. Uh, incorrect frame pacing definitely uh, impacts my enjoyment. But then there's other stuff like um, like if the base animation doesn't feel right, like the simple traversal, yeah, like just the, just playing the game. If that doesn't feel good, uh, it also kind of makes it difficult for me to want to continue to play it. These days, somehow, like the I expect like a certain level of uh, quality from the general feeling of movement, and this goes back to the to the beginning of time. Like video games as a whole, does it feel good to play or not? And if it doesn't it needs to make up for that in many other ways to be mm-hmm. interesting. And some games do, but that's really the kind of stuff that can impact my enjoyment. But beyond that, you know, I can still enjoy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alex. I'm the uh, same uh, way as John, I think here. Um, one thing in the PC space that I just, I'll, I'll drop a game immediately if it's um, kind of doing like in your face stutter, like, like loading stutter or something like that constantly. It, it just drives me up the wall for some reason. Uh, I just have a really hard time enjoying a game if it's like I'm playing it, I have this great feel of connectivity with my device, like usually a mouse and keyboard, then all of a sudden it's just like I move the mouse and it's just no response on the screen for a split second. I just can't deal with that for some reason. Um, I, I'm a little bit fine uh, with uh, you know undulations from that 60 FPS or definitely from 120 uh, going down to like 100 occasionally in a 120 fps uh, context is okay enough for me um but yeah those are like my hard red lines that i'm not too happy with other than that i totally enjoy playing older games and newer games of various technical proficiency yeah i think uh, fluctuating frame rates is the higher the frame rate the less the fluctuation is more important because it's more about persistence frame persistence at that point 
you know, an experience for me, if you've got an adaptive uh, refresh rate display, you know, 90 to 120 frames per second sounds huge, but it's not oh. really. It's like, you know, a few milliseconds. Yeah. Um, and that's something I think our frame rate graphs aren't doing a particularly good job of showing at the moment. But yeah, okay, let's move on to uh, a re an, a, an awesome question. This one from Sebastian Donastag. At which point during your gaming career did you become aware of the power NTSC and 50, 60 hertz difference? For those of you who grew up playing power games, is, are there any 50 hertz versions you still prefer playing to this day? Be it nostalgic reasons, preferring the slower pace, or any other reasons. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to start with you, John, because you would not have experienced 50 hertz hell. Yeah, this is true. Uh, so I was years. I was aware of it because of magazines and eventually the internet. I, I always played <laughs> horror stories and people. I remember when games would come out, you see like, oh, does this game have? Especially on like PS2 era, oh, it has borders uh and stuff like that and slow and i was always like what is this about but i didn't actually experience it myself weirdly until i actually moved over to europe and that's when i started to um see it more often like i would visit some folks so I'd like an old crt hooked up and the first time i saw 50 hertz by the way it is possible to see 50 hertz in the u.s if you have like a, a professional video monitor or something so it's more common today but back then uh, 2013 and older especially in the 90s you know uh there's still a lot of 50 hertz screens over here now and uh even though many of them support 60 hertz uh, those games were still targeting 50 and just the the flicker the giant borders the slowdown it, it's shocking to me like it's absolutely just bizarre to see i think the most shocking though is when we were at uh one of those events one time they have these little like 14 inch CRTs. They're running PAL versions of games that are already bordered. And for some reason, it's also triggering the letterbox widescreen mode. Yes. So you have a game, it's like this ultra wide, super squished like sliver in the middle of the image uh, with like black space all around it. And it's running slow and people were actually playing it. And I'm just like, what's going on here? Like, how, <laughs> how is this, how is this acceptable? How dare you? But the thing that really blew my mind was like, um, I showed a, a friend of mine here in Germany one time. We were we loaded up uh, the original Sonic the Hedgehog, and he'd only ever played the PAL version. Uh, wow, that's what he grew up with. And he's like, "Why is the music so fast?" And I was like, "What do you mean?" It's like, "Well, PAL version. They didn't even speed up the music. It was just slow." And so to them, it was like this weird experience of. Hearing the game at the normal rate, seeing it move at the normal speed was like a strange foreign thing. Uh, and it was hard for them to even accept the final game, but uh, the real original 60 hertz version. So it's it's weird, uh, I will say. <laughs> Do you have any experience of this, Alex? Not so much in the PC space, to be completely honest with you. Uh, no. It's rare not, there. Yeah, it's, it's pretty rare, well, actually. Well, like what the IBM PC space. If you go to like the oh, yeah. Amiga okay. and this, the, the Specky and all that, then you my, get fifty hertz. My my uh, my experience is primarily with the IBM PC stuff. Like my experience with the Amiga is seeing one in person one time <laughs> in my life. That's about it. And then watching uh, really good videos on YouTube about Amiga versions usually. So this doesn't really affect me. I think I'll, I'll be of the opinion of John here that it is really hard to imagine wanting to 
it's, it's such a rough, it's a rough shape for the European retro market as a result, uh, because you want to invest in getting an older games console, but then you may be limited to a pale version of that console. And that, 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 that is a little well, bit. Uh, so, th I mean, thankfully, at least with mods and stuff, a lot of those games, they just work at 60 Hertz. Yeah. Pretty much everything super NES, just about everything mega drive. So, like, so, so what is it exactly like, uh, can you, uh, like, Get a, a Mega Drive and convert it very easily yes. to a 60 hertz you can, machine. You can mod. You can mod these systems with the region Th that's change. That's really good. Like that's on mine, really I have a switchless mod where you just hold the reset button and it cycles between PAL, NTSC, and then NTSCJ. It's just set up for the three based on how the the dip switch works, and then it just changes. You put a tri-color LED in there as part of the mod, so you get a different color, like green, orange, or red, to denote which region you're in, and that's. That's only for games that are region protected. Otherwise, with PAL games on there, you can usually just put in the PAL Mega Drive game with the system set to Japan or US, and it just runs at 60 hertz. That's amazing. That's okay, I yeah. wasn't sure if it was different uh, uh, but, cartridges. Well, Rich, actually. I, yeah, this is the thing. Um, I, well, yeah, interesting. Um, so my first experience of being aware of the difference um, essentially, I bought a Japanese Mega Drive in 1990, 1991. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was happy days because it was everything was running at 60 hertz. Something went wrong with that Mega Drive, and it was replaced with a PAL one. And uh, oh, no. I had a, a cartridge adapter, I think, or some, you know, I could actually, like, plug in Afterburner into my PAL Mega Drive. It was like, ugh. What's going, what's going on here? This is awful. This is absolutely awful. The borders were terrible. And, you know, the music being slowed down was unforgivable. Now, obviously, things did change. Uh, Sega in particular, with um, in the Saturn generation, they did actually do proper power conversions where they got rid of the borders, they sorted out the audio, and, uh, you know, things were generally improved, although 30 frames per second games would still run at 25, which is just insane when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, it's not good. Um, but, you know, basically, it's awful. I, I would, I, I, I literally, when I was in charge of the um, official Sega magazine on the Saturn, we were advocating that people get the switches installed on their power machines <laughs> Even though, you know, I can't imagine Sega would have been too too pleased about it. It's just game changing. Just, you know, and, and more to the point, it's the way that most of the people that created the games wanted their games to be seen. They yeah. wouldn't, you know, I can't imagine uh, Yuzo Koshiro watching Streets of Rage on a Mega Drive on, on the PAL version thinking, hey, this this sounds better. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's just awful. Sonic. Uh, was Pitch a disaster. Yeah. I'll tell and, you, the, um, the weirdest one for me real quick is uh, Traveler's Tales, which is a UK studio. They developed Mickey TT, Mania. Yeah. They did a PlayStation version. It was called Mickey's Wild Adventure in Power Regions. The PlayStation version looks amazing, but it only came out in Power Regions, and it's slow. So they're huh. a UK developer what? <laughs> that developed this game exclusively for the Power Region, and it was still slow and boarded. And I'm just like, why? What? <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, not good. I mean, PlayStation, there was a lot of PAL nonsense there too. You know, that yeah. persisted into that generation and wasn't good at all. 
And um, <laughs> remarkable question this, are there any 50 Hertz versions you still prefer playing? Um, possibly there would have been, you know, um, Euro developed games that were designed for 50 Hertz. Manic yeah. Miner. <laughs> but but um, yeah, I think the other thing, which is, you know, this actually affects movies as well. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Because uh, if you watch uh, movies in uh, Euroland, uh, 23.976 frames per second, 24 frames per second. Uh, they just run them at 25 frames per second. It solves a lot of technical issues, but obviously the pitch of the movie audio track changes. Music can sound a bit odd. Voices can sound very odd. So it's not just related that, to see, video games. That's a weird one, though, because the movies actually looked smoother because of that. Exactly. Like the frame rate was yep. evenly divisible, so they looked better than they did in NTSC, where you were doing 24 into 30. Which I always off, really, really disliked. Lots of way. visible yeah. judder, even with like a you know the three three by two pull down kind of techniques mm. that were developed to smooth that out. It still was not perfect. Which is why, you know, today it's great because Blu-ray supports 24 hertz out of the gate. And TVs, if you're a 120 hertz panel, you just, it divides evenly into it. And even my plasma downstairs, uh, the Pioneer from 2008, they had a 72 hertz mode that yeah. was three by three pull down. So you get perfect 24 frames per second playback. But back in the day, that was not a thing. Mm. But yeah, PAL NTSC divide, I'm just glad it's gone. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's something something the the new generations don't have to deal with. Uh, final question here from Alan Lindqvist. Rich, how many hours have you put into Crazy Frog Racing now? Two hundred. <laughs> <laughs> also, what's, what's your opinion of the DS and GBA versions? Well, you know, this is uh, just <laughs> I don't know what to say except that. Um, we're going to need to have a full DF Retro episode produced by John to the (laughs) most exacting production standards. Uh, Audi is going to have to spend all of his spare time. I'm not paying him to do it. On the weekend. uh, To to provide his input into this. Uh, The games are still here. Um, They are being sent to to Audi in a package. So you Uh, pulled them out of the bin. Um, (laughs) The bin is required for more... Uh, worthy items. No. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. But that appeals. Yeah. Uh, that was good. That was good. Well, everyone, that's the kind of end of our Q&A session here and the end of this DF Weekly, which I hope you did enjoy. And if you do want to kind of, uh, if you did find this Q&A section very interesting and also want to support Digital Foundry in the future, and there's going to be some changes to our Patreon in the near future uh, with some maybe new tiers, new interesting things happening there. We'll see what happens. Uh, Please do support us on Patreon to get years worth of our content and high quality for download. And also to be able to chat with us on our Discord, maybe take, uh, you know, partake in a gameplay tournament with us in Unreal Tournament 2004, which uh, also happened this week, by the way. So consider that if you can. Uh, If you did like this video in general, in the YouTube sense of the word, well, hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. If you're already a subscriber, then hit that little bell in the corner to be informed as soon as Digital Foundry posts a video. If you want to talk to us about this DF Weekly, please write a comment below or follow all of us, uh, all these tags on Twitter. And this is Alex, John, and Richard signing off. Hello and welcome to another DF Weekly. Oh wait, <laughs> I didn't want to say that. Um, <laughs>
and Patreon supporters. Uh, before I get into this uh, news, before I get into the news, oh, hello and welcome to another DF Weekly. This week, no, sorry, dudes. <laughs> Just uh, I've I've got a frog in my throat. A crazy frog. Okay. Hello and welcome to another DF Weekly. This no. <laughs> I'm sure Audie's enjoying this right now while he edits the video. 